From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Nathan Radcliffe on corneal hysteresis and glaucoma, and Scott McRae on the advantages of spherical aberration. When the pressure comes up in an eye, the hysteresis drops. First this. If time and money were no object, you'd probably go to a lot of meetings. Not just ASCRS, but ESCRS, APACRS, AAO, Hawaiian Eye, and Winter Update, and you'd learn a ton. But money is an issue, and time an even bigger one. That's why I go to all of those meetings for you, speak with the presenters you'd like best, and get them to distill their talks down to just a few minutes. You can see all of these interviews at no cost at the iWorld Replay website. Just go to ewreplay.org, E-W-R-E-P-L-A-Y.org, and enjoy. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the annual meeting of the American Academy of Ophthalmology in New Orleans, Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we'll hear from Nathan Radcliffe on corneal hysteresis and its role in evaluating glaucoma, and Scott McRae on the advantages of spherical aberration. All of these interviews were fantastically interesting to me, and I learned a lot in these conversations. I hope that you enjoy them as much as I did. I'm here with Nate Radcliffe. Nate, you gave a great talk in a symposium today. Let me get you just to to outline what the subject matter was, and, and then I, I already know I have some follow-up questions. So I was asked to speak on corneal biomechanics and whether corneal biomechanical assessment provides any additional information in the management of glaucoma. Now, as you know, corneal thickness has been uh, a, a great field for us to learn a lot more about the management of our glaucoma patients. We initially were interested in corneal thickness because we thought we might adjust pressure measurements based on the thickness and ended up learning in the ocular hypertension treatment study that having a thin cornea is an independent risk factor for glaucoma progression. Meaning that, that, that even when we adjusted for the IOP based on corneal thickness, thin corneas still carried an additional risk factor. That's right. And I think that where we are today with corneal thickness is we don't so much rely on it to adjust a pressure number, but rather we just know that someone who has a thin cornea is indeed at a higher risk for both the development of glaucoma and for its progression. But uh, your talk today dealt with more than just corneal thickness. What did you talk about? Right. So I spoke about corneal biomechanical properties, and probably the most applicable thing that we have right now is corneal hysteresis. Now, corneal hysteresis is defined as... Uh, and this is using a technique called um, air puff tonometry, uh, where uh, we look at the pressure at which the cornea bends in and the pressure at which it rebounds and forms its uh, regular shape. And it turns out there's a difference between those two pressures. In some eyes, there's a small difference, and in some eyes, there's a large difference. Uh, that difference is defined as corneal hysteresis. It is thought to be a measure of corneal 
viscous dampening. Uh, so I think of it as how well can this cornea function as a shock absorber. You can imagine that some corneas are very strong and can take uh, a lot of energy without having much of a movement in the cornea, and others will, uh, will bend with just the slightest amount of pressure. Now, I, I, have a, I have a sort of complicated question here. Uh, complicated for me, not, not, not for you, Neil. Um, now, I, I, I can understand why it is that a thin cornea might influence the IOP measurement and that that's going to play into uh, risks and maybe it's a marker for something else. We don't know what. Hysteresis is, I would guess, is not going to play a substantial role in the way that I'm measuring pressure. Is it that hysteresis at the cornea is a marker for hysteresis at the lamina? Well, that's one of the theories, and you know it, it is very complex. And in fact, hysteresis does influence our assessment of the pressure as well. Um, a couple of things about hysteresis, and I'll t talk a little bit about the corneal thickness and hysteresis because uh, they are related. They're weakly correlated to each other. Uh, but when the pressure comes up in an eye, the hysteresis drops. So it is more of a corneal behavior than an intrinsic corneal property. Uh, and it's also more dynamic. For example, corneal thickness is often symmetric. Corneal hysteresis is often asymmetric. In fact, it's been shown that it'll be lower in the eye with the worst glaucoma damage. Uh, so it's more dynamic, uh, more adaptive to the pressure. But if you have glaucoma damage, even if you lower the pressure, the hysteresis will come up a little bit, but still stay very low. So it is also a sign of how much glaucoma damage an eye has accumulated. And as a side note, uh, patients with keratoconus also have a lower corneal hysteresis as well. Huh, interesting stuff. So, so you're saying that even in uh, patients with symmetric pressures that there can and symmetric CCTs, there can be differences in hysteresis between right, right and left eye. Yep, and those uh, differences will correlate to glaucoma stage, visual field damage. I mean, it's fascinating to me that uh, and the mean deviation of a visual field is often very closely correlated uh, with a corneal hysteresis. And in, in, in my mind, the fact that the cornea, bouncing air off a cornea is going to tell you something about a patient's visual function related to glaucoma is fascinating. And I, I can't explain fully why that's the case, but I think it's something we need to pay attention to and learn more about. Now, Nate, I, I'm, a, I'm a numbers guy. I, I would love to measure this parameter. How do I do it? So currently we have one device that's the ocular response analyzer uh, created by Riker, and it's a pneumotonometer or an air, uh, air puff uh, non-contact tonometer is the, the correct term. And uh, you know, so you can use it to measure the pressure and the corneal hysteresis. So it's very simple. It's similar to an autorefractor. The patient sits down. You get a measurement very quickly. It will give you something called a corneal compensated intraocular pressure, which is a pressure adjusted for hysteresis. Uh, it can be useful, but in my mind, I still like to keep them separately as, you know, I think these adjustments make things a little simpler than they need to be. Uh, so you measure that and, uh, you know, to give you an example, probably the average patient is around nine and a half. Uh, nine, eight, seven, six are more lower numbers and often, uh, you know, someone with a hysteresis of five is has a decent probability of having glaucoma. On the other side of things, these high hysteresis numbers can uh, suggest just as a thick cornea would, that you might not need to be as concerned about a high pressure number in those patients. So there is an immediate clinical usefulness. One other thing is that patients with high hysteresis don't show much of a change in their pressure when they're given eye drops. 
or have laser trabeculoplasty, and patients with a low hysteresis have more of a response. That's really interesting. It, it is, and in fact, it's paradoxical, because as we were saying, low hysteresis means you've got worse prognosis in terms of glaucoma progression, but at the same time, I put you on a drop, and you will probably get a 30% pressure reduction from a prostaglandin analog, whereas that person with a low risk but high hysteresis may show a more modest response. For me, the implications are huge because I don't want to overtreat my high hysteresis patients who may have a pressure of 24 but a full field healthy nerve. I can put them on a drop and feel comfortable that uh, I didn't need to get such a pressure reduction. And meanwhile, I won't pat myself on the back when I get 30% pressure reduction in a high risk, low hysteresis patient. Instead, I'll monitor them carefully and even consider adding therapy. Really, really cool stuff. Yep. Nate, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much, Josh. Good to see you always. I'm here with Scott McRae. Scott, you gave a a a, a great talk uh, on a on a really neat project that, that you've done. Let me get you to outline that for us. So what we did, I worked with my optical lab um, group and Gunya uh, Young and Len Zolenyak. And uh, basically what we did is used a binocular adaptive optic system where we could correct out the aberration in each eye uh, and we could basically give them perfect vision or supervision with the AO system, and then we could add in uh, a certain amount of nearsightedness or, or leave it fully corrected and do monovision, but we could also add in higher-order aberrations like spherical aberration. So, sorry, so uh, just, just, to, just to be clear, with, with, the, with the system, with the laboratory system, you have um, live wavefront data coming from the patient's eye that is then being fed to a deformable mirror to correct it out right. so that uh, you, you can compensate for all of the wavefront error or add in error in a, in a controlled fashion. Right. So we're measuring the wavefront error with a deformable or with a wavefront sensor, and then we're correcting it out with a deformable mirror, which has little pistons behind it. Right. And it corrects that out. And we can add in whatever level of, let's say, spherical aberration or trefoil or coma or astigmatism. So we can measure, and then we can measure visual performance, like contrast sensitivity, visual acuity, uh, uh, stereo acuity uh, with the system. So it gives us a, a tremendous measurement tool to sort of model how the brain can adapt to these uh, these different images, and how can we optimize it to, you know, to really take advantage of this new knowledge? And and what did you find? Tell tell me about the study. So um, basically, what we did is we, we've been working on this for a long time, looking at you know how can we sort of design an optimal intraocular lens, let's say, that really takes full advantage of the, the binocular visual system. So we first started and we looked at traditional monovision. Basically, when you do Monovision. Well, let me back up and get, go into some visual science. Basically, binocular summation is the fact that two eyes are better than one. And I'm going to I'm going to use my I, microphone here because I, I need both hands. So when you in full focus at distance, two eyes are basically better than one, and that's called binocular summation. And when you do monovision, as you start increasing that difference between the two eyes. Uh, up to about 1.5 doctors, you start losing binocular summation, and at 1.5 doctors, it's sort of neutral. Two eyes are, are, are basically as good as the best eye at distance, let's say. Uh, once you go beyond that, let's say to two doctors, now two, you get binocular inhibition. That is, two eyes are worse than one, and we've all had patients where their two eyes are different, 
and they're not able to summate basically and they say well can't you just make that one eye like the other eye so I can see better when I'm driving at night let's say. So that's called binocular inhibition and when you have a traditional monovision that trade-off is usually at about 1.5 diopters that you don't really want to go much beyond that. So what we did is we actually added in some spherical aberration and that gives you a greater depth of focus in that in the near eye. Uh, you can also actually do that in the distance eye. But the important point is that when you do that, you create an image that the brain can summate better with because the image in the near eye is closer, at least a part of that image is closer to the distance eye in the, and you get better binocular summation by doing that. The other advantage is you get greater depth of focus in your intermediate, what we found in this particular um, study was the intermediate vision was much better. You didn't get that peak in the near and a peak at distance, but you got a sort of a, uh, a greater depth of focus uh, with, or depth of field with that, uh, with the monocular near eye. Now you can also do the same thing, I didn't mention this, but you can do the same thing by adding a little bit of spherical aberration in the distance eye and bring these two images better and then you get the advantage of depth of focus. The other thing is we found that the contrast sensitivity was basically better, i.e. visual performance, visual acuity was better with this modified monovision strategy and um, we actually got better depth, per depth perception as well. So that, that, that's, that's really, really neat. So when well, so if if we were to have and because I've seen studies like this that, that that if we have an eye where the aberrations are corrected uh, and uh, studies have shown that the patients get much better contrast sensitivity, that's only really when we're testing that one eye when we have the two at, in combination at that, at that, at that, that distance, distance. Right. When we have the two in combination, it actually may be dis. At, advantageous because uh, we have such a such a sharp peak there that's right so should should I be managing patients differently clinically I mean should I be uh, when I'm doing cataract surgery and I'm intending monovision to be putting an an aspheric lens for the distance eye and a lens with a little bit more spherical aberration for the near eye, or, or do you not so, really do this clinically? So you, so you can actually, I mean, there are individuals now, surgeons that are sort of playing with this idea of fully correcting a distance and then... Uh, Smearing things out at near a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and giving yourself a little bit of depth of focus. Now, you can do that with just a regular spherical uh, monofocal lens because the cornea actually has some positive spherical aberration. So you can of kind of take advantage of that. Uh, and, and, you know, doing that and, let's say, under... Uh, undercorrecting and leaving them about a diopter and a quarter myopic, they get pretty good vision function. And the other part of this is that we also have the advantage of new technology, i.e. people are using computer screens more and uh, they're more intermediate vision focused. So using, I think in the future we're going to see strategies to kind of use this greater depth of focus. And the interesting thing that we found is that the trade-off of, you know, a little less peak in terms of that, that near image quality uh, that trade-off is more than compensated by that greater depth of focus because then you get that nice the, intermediate bump. And the, is, and the binocular processing. In the bino and then you get the added advantage of binocular summation, better depth of focus. And, you know, the, the, the thing that we're learning that's so exciting about this is that um, when we when we do this, when we're looking at binocular visual function, uh, we're looking at all these different things at all these different distances. And it's not just distance visual acuity, it's the contrast at all these different 
uh, distances and how the how the brain integrates that. I just have one more oh, image I want oh, to show. Absolutely, I'm so, going to hold you, Mike. So when you're looking at distance, just think about this. When you're looking at distance, um, the brain is actually um, focusing on that distance image. Meanwhile, the brain is actually suppressing the near image. And when you look at near, the brain is actually focusing on the distant or the near image, and it's suppressing that. And that's like software filtration. It's it's. And when people first start adapting to Monovision, they, they, their brains are very active, actually, learning how to do that software filtering. Eventually, they learn how to do that pretty darn well, most of them, and some people don't. But once they learn how to do that, um, it works pretty well. But as people fatigue, let's say late in the day, then that software filter sort of breaks down a little bit. And when I do Monovision on patients with cataract surgery, I talk to them about I give them this exact... Uh, analogy, and when I do that, I think they're much more compliant because they understand that near vision, they're not going to see quite so well. And they understand also that their brain is doing this software filtering. And I think that they, you know, I have a better acceptance rate of this modified monovision strategy uh, on those patients. Really, really neat stuff. Scott, thank you very much for spending time with us today. It's been great. Uh, and really had a, uh, it's a great meeting. Lots of great stuff going on. Absolutely. Thank you. Nathan Radcliffe comes to us from the New York University Department of Ophthalmology in New York, New York. Scott McRae joins us from the University of Rochester Medical Center School of Medicine and Dentistry in Rochester, New York. Ask questions of Dr. Radcliffe, Dr. McRae, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.